Hey everybody, welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, actor Javon McFerrin joins the show. On Broadway, he has played the role of Alexander Hamilton in Hamilton and Smokey Robinson in Motown, the musical. Also, Javon received an Adelco nomination for Outstanding Male Performance in a Musical for the role of Dennis in Tearing Down the Walls. Javon has also appeared on TV where he's played the role of Chuck on the BET comedy series 20s, and he's appeared in commercials as well. His father, Bobby McFerrin, is a multi-time Grammy Award-winning musician who sang the iconic 80s song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Javon, welcome to the show! Thank you so much for having me on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm good. My cat is asleep right now, so I don't think that she's going to bother us during this interview. <laughs> good. No meowing factor. No meowing factors. She's been outside in the L.A. heat all day, so I think that she's a little worn out and going to take a very long nap. My first question kind of out of the gate here with your dad being in music and entertainment and your siblings also being in music and entertainment. What drew you to the same aspect of uh, entertainment and now being in L.A.? I think just going to a lot of my dad's shows was really influential, whether it be doing something where it's a solo show or as he was conducting when he was doing that with the San Francisco Orchestra or the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And just being in that atmosphere, I think, was just very influential to us. But the one thing that I'll always commend my parents for is that they never made us feel like we had to be in the arts. All three of us just gravitated towards it. First thing that my big brother Taylor wanted to be was he wanted to be a video game designer because he used to just draw all the time. And then his best friend, Tony, in high school was the one that really got him into music a lot, into producing. And that's kind of how my brother segued into it. And then with my little sister, she, like me, was in choirs and things of that nature. And then when she went to Berkeley School of Music, that is really what set her on her path. And I'm really, really happy and proud to see the musical growth that they've both gone through. They're both heroes of mine when it comes to the music scene, aside from my dad. But my big brother and my little sister are gems, for sure. What was it like growing up in such a talented household? For me, it was pretty normal. My bedtime stories were really cool. They all came with sound effects, like Calvin and Hobbes has been imprinted in my DNA when it comes to the sounds that I'll be stealing whenever I have kids in the future and I tell bedtime stories. I don't think that it really became different for me noticing it until I left San Francisco and we moved to Minnesota. Because when we were growing up as kids in San Francisco, we kind of already had our group of friends and we went to a really liberal kind of hippie-ish school. So all the parents really knew each other and I didn't feel like I was really treated differently until we left that little Bay Area San Francisco bubble. So whenever people ask me that question, it was really cool because I got to do some really cool things that obviously some other kids wouldn't be able to do because my dad was famous. But my dad, at the end of the day, just wanted to be a good dad. Whenever he was in town, he drove us to school. He made us breakfast. He was always just trying to be present, and he didn't try to act like he was something other than my father, which I'll always love and respect. How much of a culture shock was it to move from San Francisco to Minnesota? It was a crazy culture shock. It was not something that I wanted when I was growing up. I definitely wanted to stay in the world that I kind of knew. I was always an introvert, extrovert. 
when you first meet me, I can be kind of quiet. But once you really get to know me, I probably don't shut up. But I also just didn't have a lot of self-confidence. So me kind of having to start over was just really, really scary for me. And then the Midwest is completely different than the Bay Area, whether it's culturally, weather-wise. I definitely learned what a bitter cold winter was, but it was definitely different for all of us. I think the one that it probably affected the least is my little sister, because when we left, she was only two. So I feel like for me, because I left after third grade, I just felt like maybe that's like a impressionable year of growing up, especially when you've already had the same friends since preschool. So it was a little bit of a culture shock, but I'm still here. So I made it through on the other side. And then from Minnesota, you went to Philly. Is that right? I know that for my father, he kind of wanted to not be as bothered and recognized as he was in San Francisco. I definitely remember lots of dinners at restaurants being interrupted by people. Obviously, they just want to say hi. I don't have a memory of somebody being rude, but I also think that my dad was on a different journey where he just wanted to do different things musically. And with Minnesota and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, they offered him a position and he took it. And then after all of that stuff kind of ran its course, Philadelphia was just a city that he really liked when he was touring, doing a lot of solo shows. And also my dad did a lot of his work in Europe. So to be able to fly from the East Coast instead of either the Midwest or the West Coast all the way to Europe was also super appealing to cut travel time and be able to get home quicker when he was done with his tours. But Philadelphia was cool. I went to a creative and performing arts high school because that was something that I really enjoyed doing ever since I was a little kid. So my parents always made sure that whatever school I went to had a really good theater program and that had a good arts background. When your dad was touring Europe, did the family ever get a chance to go with him and kind of experience Europe? Yeah, we did. There was definitely a year where we did the whole European thing together. It was cool to see the different People around the world really gravitate towards my dad and his shows and what he was able to do when it comes to improv and play. I think that's also something that's really influenced me in my work as well when it comes to just going for it and seeing what the reactions are. My dad was just a genius in a way where he figured out how to tap into everybody as a group with music can connect through that. And then he was able to just make the crowd into his own personal choir. It was always fun to see my dad's shows. I don't know how many I've been to. I'm sure I've been to hundreds, but no Bobby McFerrin show is the same. They're all kind of one big improv, and it's pretty cool to watch. Watched on YouTube a performance you did with your dad. What was it like performing with him? Intimidating sometimes. There's a couple of performances on YouTube you could probably find. There's one where I'm doing Sunshine of Your Love on Blue Note with him. There was also another one I did where I sang a song that he wrote for my mom called Mere Words. But it was always fun. All of us have done it as kids. I used to, as a kid, go up on stage and sing Yellow Submarine because I saw their movie, that cartoon that they did forever ago. And for some reason, that song was the song that I loved. So my dad has always just really enjoyed performing with us. And if we ever do it, our usual go-to is Simple Pleasures. And all three of us will sing that with him. But 
performing with dad, it's fun and it's also intimidating at the same time because on one hand, he's my dad and this is what he does. And on the other hand, he's one of the greatest jazz musicians to have ever done it. So sometimes you kind of have to take that part of it and not remember that because that's what makes you super, super nervous. But it's always been fun. I have no singing voice whatsoever, so I would not be doing that. If he was doing shows still, he would probably somehow find you in the crowd and make you sing a few notes. He had a knack for finding people who were very, very scared to sing in front of people. He would always make them do it somehow, though. So that was part of the gag. It was part of his shtick. I think that's also what made him super entertaining. Yeah, I'm five foot three. I'll hide behind a tall person. He'll still find you. I promise. He also had a thing where he would actually climb over the rows of seats. He wouldn't just go down the aisles. He would literally climb over people and just choose somebody at random. So he would have found you. Seeing the way that he interacted with the crowd, how has that helped you in terms of your acting career and your performances being able to read a crowd? It's helped me a lot. Let's take Hamilton, for example. When you come out and you say, I'm Alexander Hamilton, and the crowd goes wild, they're kind of inviting you to play with them. But then also there's some shows where it was a huge blizzard and people had been waiting outside forever. So you could tell that they were a little uncomfortable in the beginning. And so it's one of those shows where you're also like, okay, so the audience is informing me that it's going to take them a little bit longer to get into the show. Let's start it at a softer place and let's have the audience guide where they want to go today. So I feel like being able to read the energy of the crowd is something that my dad probably inadvertently taught me. But as a performer, it's, it's super important because when you are on stage, it is an energy exchange. And once you tap into the audience, it's like we're on the journey together. And sometimes they lead, sometimes I lead, sometimes my co-stars lead, and it's different every day. You mentioned that your co-stars sometimes lead. How are you, as a cast member, able to read that and kind of react? Because at that point, it's almost an improv situation, even though you're going on a script. We have rehearsals and things of that nature, but when it comes to Broadway, sometimes we have understudies. We have swings, which keeps it super fresh. So sometimes there might be somebody like my friend Roddy, who was in Hamilton. I've probably played four different roles in different combinations with him. So it's always fun to have a scene with him because I know he might do something different today because the person that he's playing now, he usually doesn't play. So I feel like it's always fun to play with a new person and it also keeps you on your toes and it makes you listen more and it makes you want to receive more. So whenever there was an understudy on, or even if I was playing a different role, because in Hamilton, I was a standby. So I played Hamilton, I played Lafayette Jefferson, I played Mulligan Madison, and I played Lawrence Phillips. So I had countless combinations of different people that I would play with in different times. Because if I'm Hamilton, there might be a cast member or ensemble member who I don't really get to interact with because our paths just don't cross. But if I played Lawrence Phillip, our paths might have crossed five times. So it's always fun to have little discoveries when you're playing different roles. When you are playing different roles, 
How do you kind of keep each one straight in terms of preparing for a show? Because one night you could be playing one and the next night you could be playing somebody else. Lots of prayer. No, <laughs> it is difficult sometimes. Hamilton, the interesting thing about that is there are some lines that start exactly the same. And by the 10th word, it's different. So you kind of have to make sure that you hit that 10th word. Because, for example, the top of my shot and then the top of Philip's song in Act 2 start exactly the same. And then in the third measure, it's different wording. So when things like that would happen, I would definitely offstage run through the first couple of lyrics of the song to remind myself that I'm a different person today. But I had great teachers when it came to that show. And... Blankenbuehler, who was the choreographer, plays with a lot of shapes in his choreography and staging. So for me, it was a game of mirrors. I always knew if I was one person and then this person was going to be on my right, this person was going to be on my left and vice versa. But then also I would get to the theater early and I would do a really quick run through of the show just by myself on the stage, especially when I first joined the cast, because I joined the cast right after they swept the Tonys. So for me, I just felt a responsibility to keep up with the people that created this show that was so wonderful and beautiful. I wanted to make sure that I was on the same level as them. And I hope that I accomplished that. When you say a game of mirrors, could you kind of explain that a little bit for people who aren't maybe as familiar with theater? Oh, yes. As a standby, which is basically an understudy, you have to know a whole bunch of different roles and you have to be able to perform them at a moment's notice. And for me, the game of mirrors was Blank and Bueller like to put people in triangles. So let's take my shot, for example, when Hamilton starts rapping at the top. When everybody starts standing around, they're at a certain point on the stage. And I'm also very, very visual. When I was learning one role, for example, I learned Lafayette Jefferson first, but while I was performing that role, I would take mental notes of where the other characters I play are. So I always would check off in my head, okay, I'm Lafayette today, so I know that Hamilton's going to be on my left, I know Mulligan's going to be on my right, I know that Lawrence is going to be directly across from me. So the next time I play this role, if I'm somebody else... If I'm Mulligan, I know that Lafayette's going to be on my left. Lawrence is going to be on my right. Hamilton's going to be directly in front of me. So it was a visual game for me. You played Smokey Robinson in Motown the Musical. With your dad being involved in music and Smokey being a legend in music, how much pressure was there on you? I felt super amounts of pressure only because that was my Broadway debut. And I never really thought I was going to be on Broadway. So when I booked it, I kind of had a holy crap moment. Oh, I got to learn how to do these dance moves. But I remember when I played Smokey, the trick with Smokey is the very first line Smokey says, you have to like have his voice because his speaking voice and his singing voice are just very, very iconic. And I remember the first time I did it in front of my parents, I blinked and I messed up. I told my parents not to sit in the almost front row, but then of course they did. And so I kind of had the walking into the white room moment where you kind of just forget everything that you're doing. But 
it was really fun to play Smokey. I mean, Smokey is a much bigger person than me. He's much taller than me. But the original Smokey, Carl Brown, was really awesome to me. It was his role. He got a Tony nomination for it. But when I came in, he really allowed me to ask questions. And if there was anything I needed, he was there for me. So I feel like I was able to have a little bit more ease with it because I had somebody who was just so nice to me and Charles just wanted me to succeed as well. And then also my dad covered a Smokey Robinson song back in the day. So I was very familiar with his stuff and that's one of the songs that I sang in the show. So it was also kind of just a cool full circle moment for me because it was one of my favorite songs that my dad covered. It was just fun to be able to do that show. And then it also, for me, just proved that I could do it, especially after Charles took a week vacation and then I got to play Smokey for an entire week. And then after I did eight shows in a week, I was like, okay, I can do this. Because sometimes you have doubt, but once you find your footing, it just becomes a really fun game to play. And also that cast was amazing. Everybody in that cast was great and so warm and welcoming. And they didn't judge me at all because they definitely knew who my dad was when I walked in. But they saw that I worked hard and that I wanted to be there. After they saw that, they all just really accepted me. And I'm still good friends with a lot of the people in that cast. Good, you know, you swung lightly on Broadway and entered with an easy role. (laughs) Yeah. I also do remember, though, it was so embarrassing. I didn't even realize it until someone told me afterwards. My first solo moment as Smokey. I sang acapella. It's like, I don't want you, but I need you. I started it off key, which was great. So my first real Broadway mistake was fully out in the open for everyone to see. I'm sure I have that video somewhere on my phone. I think a friend of mine a few years ago sent it to me. And I was like, wow, you guys never told me I started off key. And they're like, well, it was your first time. We didn't want you to feel super embarrassed, but that's live theater for you. I always start everything off key and never get on key. It was pretty embarrassing, but we had another show that day. So I made sure that I started on key for the second show. (laughs) When you do two shows in a day, what's the mental preparation like? That makes for a long day. It does, but that's where nap time is important and water and eating healthy. I didn't live close enough. I lived in Brooklyn at the time, so I didn't have enough time to go home and then come back. I would either grab a bite and then take a nap, or I would go to the gym and then sit in the steam to make sure that I kept my voice healthy. But the Broadway life is kind of the opposite of a nine to five. We're kind of a four to 10, 11. And then when you get home, it takes you a little bit of time to kind of like wind down. So it's It's more of like being a night owl, which I always kind of have been, but you definitely learn that you have to take care of your body and your instrument. It's a lot of go to the gym, you stretch. I figured out what other muscles were after I did a few weeks on Broadway because I was like, oh, this hurts. So then I would go to PT. I also learned a lot more about my instrument and my body. So It was a learning experience, and then you figure out how to be able to pace yourself, and then you you make sure that you stay on that. Because doing a show when you're super tired isn't fun, but you kind of just get into a groove, and you make sure that you take care of yourself. So you learn. You definitely learn, and you also ask questions. Or We had a lot of Broadway vets in Motown, so they taught me a lot of tricks. 
They taught me if you can eat an apple real quick while you're off stage, it gives you a little boost. And also the acidity takes the mucus off of your vocal cords. So there's little tricks that everybody taught me and I still apply those things today. When I first started working in TV, I worked 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. So I could kind of relate to you. And the other thing is your big dates are on weekends and in sports, big games are on weekends. Yeah. For me, it was usually sleep and hanging out with my dog that I had at the time. It was really hard on Broadway when you do five show weekends. That's when you have, instead of a Wednesday matinee, that matinee gets moved over to either Saturday or Sunday. So it was a Friday night and then two shows on Saturday and then two shows on Sunday. By the last show on Sunday, you're very, very tired. And then you might go out and hang out with friends for a little bit. But most of the time, you probably just go home and like try to get as much rest as possible because five show weekends are super draining. When it comes to theater, Broadway or not, what is your favorite role that you have played? I want to say is Hamilton, followed very, very closely by Lafayette Jefferson. Hamilton, you really get to play the arc, the entire life of this man who changed the course of the United States. And for me, I started him, he was super young, he's scrappy, and he's fiery. And then in Act Two, he's established, and he's a little calmer. He still has his moments, but now he's a father. And you play him all the way to his death. That was just an honor and a privilege to be able to do as many times as I did. And then Lafayette Jefferson, for me, I called him Purple Tigger because anytime I put on that purple jacket, he just became very bouncy and very animated and very fun. So I would have to say that those are the two roles that I really, really enjoyed playing a lot. I think if there was any role that I wish I could have played in that show, it was probably Burr. Because I think Burr is the closest to my personality. I think I put my personality in all the characters, but Burr was definitely one that I wish I had a crack at. But definitely say that Hamilton is my favorite role that I've ever played. Prior to getting fully into Broadway, you were a stand-up comedian for a little while. What was that like? I guess I've always kind of been like a clown. And I remember when I told my brother I was going to start doing some open mics and stuff. And he was like, finally, go do it. And so there was a couple of friends that I had that were doing it. My friend Jerron Young, who's still doing it in New York. And we went to some open mics and we got to do a couple of things. And then I was able to do a show that got recorded. And I talked about things that were like personal to me. I made fun of my dad. I made fun of moving in with my girlfriend at the time. And it was super, super fun. And I probably should get back into it. But every time that I've done it, I'll do it for a few weeks and then I would book a show. And then with the Broadway schedule, all the open mics are during the times that I was either rehearsing or working. So I couldn't really do anything. And then I went back for a hot second and then I booked Hamilton. So now that we have the strike and stuff going on, maybe I should just dust off my old joke book and do some open mics out here in Los Angeles. But it was really, really fun. And it also taught me to be super vulnerable because when you're up there by yourself, there's no one there to save you. I've definitely bombed at open mics. And those are the longest, loneliest, most embarrassing three to five minutes that you can think of. But that's part of the gig. And that's part of what happened. It's also kind of part of life. Sometimes you crush it. Sometimes you don't. I enjoyed it because once you get the audience to laugh, 
it's kind of like a drug. It's super, super addicting. And you just want to get them to laugh and go on a ride with you. So I was happy that I have a solid five minutes that people can YouTube and I'm happy that they think it's funny. I did stand up with open mic nights for about a year and a half. And I can agree when you bomb, it's so bad. Even the crickets are walking out. Oh, it's so bad. It hurts. And you question everything. Question like, why am I even up here? Why am I even talking? But when you crush it, it's the complete opposite effect. You have a buzz and you feel like you're walking on air. It's just so much fun. But it's a super high reward and a super low reward. I mean, sometimes you can just do well and you feel like you did well and that's okay. Some people laugh and stuff. But I also feel like I sometimes am my own worst critic. And I feel like when you do stand up, sometimes that comes up a lot more because it's just you up there. It's much easier just to criticize yourself. One bit that you did that I really liked was the biracial brain, which was hilarious, by the way. Oh, yeah. My joke basically was I'm mixed. My tagline was Negro in disguise, but to the Transformers theme song and how I always have a black side and a white side talking to me. And I also feel like as a biracial person, we kind of live in an in-between world, especially coming from the Bay Area, going to Minnesota, Philadelphia. Sometimes you kind of feel like you have to morph into a different person to kind of fit in. So for me, it was just a fun way to express how sometimes I feel like Sometimes I might have to talk this way. Sometimes I feel like I have to act this way. My wife is also biracial too. So we have these conversations where we know that sometimes when you're in a certain situation, people might look at you one way or the other and you kind of just morph with it. So I decided to make it into a, a stand-up bit. Have you ever come across any racial discrimination? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I've had them everywhere. I've been told that I'm not Black enough, I've been told I'm the whitest Black person that I've ever met. And I feel like as a biracial person, sometimes you really take that to heart and it messes with your identity. There are conversations that I know that I could probably only have with biracial people because they get it. Not to say that Black people or white people aren't open to having the conversation. They definitely are. But just like there are certain experiences I might not know what it's like, I definitely have experiences that they don't know what it's like. And it's kind of like this gray area world where people just will look at you and be like, well, your dad's black, your mom's white, so you don't get it. Or there are times where people feel safe enough where they can ask me a racially charged question because I'm mixed. In Minnesota, I always had the joke where I was the go-between. I was like the translator. There was a kid who was reading a book and it was about a black basketball player with a single mom. But when he was talking, he would say, so my mom's was talking to me about this. And so he came up to me and he was like, so when he says moms, does that mean he has two moms? Or because I feel like I've only read about one mom character, but the fact that he came to me about it and not my black friend about it oh, I'm safe enough for you to ask these questions because you might feel like you might offend a full person of color. So it's always been interesting, that in-between world, but the older I've gotten, I embrace it because that's who I am. But there have been situations where 
I know that I'm being treated much differently than other people. Speaking of being treated differently, when people hear your last name, they probably instantly connect it with your dad. Has that created anything that maybe made your life a little bit more difficult? I would say maybe when I was much younger, during the height of my dad's career, but now, not really. Some people actually don't put it together until much later. I feel like people put it more together now after they'll meet me and then they'll look at my Instagram and then randomly be like, holy crap, I didn't know that your dad was Bobby McFerrin. When I was much younger, sometimes it bothered me because I felt like my whole name was, this is Bobby McFerrin's son, Javon McFerrin. I got that a lot instead of just being introduced as Javon or Javon McFerrin. I felt like people put a title in front of my name, which for me was just more uncomfortable than anything because then it also put me in a place of feeling I had to protect myself. People maybe just wanted to be my friend because of who my dad was. And I didn't really start experiencing that until I moved to Minnesota because when I was growing up, I had the same friends. So nobody really cared when I was still in San Francisco, but it was kind of a thing. And then sometimes, especially when I was first starting out in theater, people will see my last name and they might've thought that I got the job because of him. But in turn, that just made me work harder to show them that I deserve to be there, which I know in the long run, they all respected because they were like, oh, he actually does have some talent. He is actually working hard. So when it comes to auditions, my dad isn't in the room. He's not the one auditioning for me. So it's a cool snapple fact that my dad is a jazz legend, but all three of us kids have had some sort of moment when that's been brought up. We now kind of just all wear it like a badge of honor because we're all older and more mature and it's not our identity. We're all individuals. It's just really cool that our dad is Bob McFerrin. He's awesome. He's the man. I have to ask, when you have an issue and somebody looks at you and says, don't worry, be happy, how annoyed do you get? I used to get annoyed, but now I make it a joke. Now I say things like, oh, it's great. It paid for college. It doesn't bother me that much anymore. I know that a lot of people, that's kind of the only thing that they know of my dad when it comes to their musical knowledge of my father. But more often than not, people come up to me about that song and they actually tell me like a really cool story. Like my parents used to play that song all the time and it reminds me of my mom or friends randomly will, if they're on vacation or something and the song plays, they'll send me a video of it. It's crazy that sometimes it's still culturally relevant. On the, what's that show on HBO? The Gemstones. I'm forgetting full name of it, but they just did a bit about my dad. Family Guy did a bit about my dad. And then there's other people who know a lot of musical knowledge about my father. And they'll be like, oh, the voice album or spontaneous interventions or medicine music. Or they'll talk about my grandfather, who was the first African-American to be signed to the Metropolitan Opera House. The movie Porgy and Bess with Sidney Poitier. When Sidney Poitier is singing, that's my grandfather's voice. So every once in a while, there are people who talk to me more about his musical history instead of just one song. But there hasn't been a lot of jokey, jokey stuff. I feel like that probably happened a lot more when I was a kid and it got annoying for a little bit. But most of the time, it's people that just have really fun stories and what that song means for them. You brought up your grandfather because I wanted to ask with you and your siblings all having some sort of involvement with music in one way or another. 
do you feel that there's an extra level of pressure to live up to him? Because he really was a trailblazer. No, we don't feel any pressure. I feel like if there was any pressure or anything, it's probably when we were kids or if we were first starting out. Because if you look up articles or things with me or my brother or my sister, that's always usually in the first paragraph or two. They talk about our family lineage. And when you're first starting to figure out who you are as a person, I feel like sometimes there might be some pressure with it. And you're like, oh, I have to live up to my father. I have to live up to my grandfather. They're going to be disappointed or something. But they never were. I think that was the great thing about my parents is that they were just happy that we were having fun. I was never told, all right, you have to go in your room and study this music for an hour or something. If I wanted to do theater, my parents were like, cool, let's see if we can find a theater for you to go do some stuff. Oh, you want to sing? Let's see if we can find a choir. But if I didn't want to do it anymore, they're like, okay, that's cool. We talked a lot about your dad, but while he was touring, how important of a role did your mom play? If my mom wasn't around, I don't think the three of us would be where we are. My mom is the rock of the family. She, in a way, was a single mother because my dad was touring a lot. We also joke that my mom runs the family, and she does. She did an amazing job raising us, keeping us together, showing that a family is who you choose. We have a really dope extended family, too. My godparents are a huge part of my upbringing as well. Roger and Susanna, they met my parents in Lamont's class when they were both pregnant with their first kids. So they're my mom and dad, too. And their daughter, Jamaica, is my big sister. The only thing that separates us is blood. And my mom really, and still does, an amazing job of being supportive and being there to talk to us whenever we're in need. And my mom is the MVP. People know who my dad is and he's world renowned, but I think my father would even agree that he wouldn't be where he is either without my mom. My mom told me a story and my dad confirmed it too, where my dad was just at a low point. He wasn't really booking gigs and was maybe thinking of a career change. My mom wrote him a letter. I need you to pursue your dreams because if you don't, you're not going to be the person who I'm in love with and who I know who you are. And so my mom was a really big influence to my dad to be able to follow his dream. And I think my dad would have been successful and was always talented, but I think that my mom really allowed him to be him and supported him and supported all of us. So I could go on and on about my mom forever. I'm actually going to have dinner with her later tonight. And I'm super excited about that because I always have a great time with my mom. She's my best friend. My mom is an amazing, amazing woman. And I definitely know that I probably wouldn't be here as far as I've made it in my career without her guidance as well. So shout out to Debbie McFerrin. She is the wizard behind the curtain. She is truly, truly one of a kind. What cuisine's on the food menu tonight? I don't know where we're going yet. I'll probably figure that out after we're done talking, but she's hanging out with my little nephew. So we're all just going to go get dinner together. She either makes a reservation and I find out when I get there or we'll play it by ear. It's just always a fun time when I'm with my mom. And also our family built around food. 
we love food. That's just our thing. There's, it's always a good time when we're around the dinner table somewhere. You said you can talk about your mom all day. I could talk about food all day. <laughs> food is great. Being the fact that you've lived in some culinary meccas, what's your favorite type of cuisine? Oh, man. I'm going to go with Italian only because we did a family trip when I was younger. and We were in Italy for a few weeks, and that just left such an impression with the food. But for me, I feel like I just have good dishes that mean a lot. My mom's spaghetti and my mom's fried chicken are amazing. Best tacos and burritos are La Taqueria in San Francisco on 25th and Mission. Philadelphia was a great food scene. Me and my wife also really love food. We don't get Christmas presents for each other. We just go to a really expensive restaurant and split the bill. That's just what we like to do. Our first date, we went from mozzarella sticks and chicken wings to after that, we went to an oyster bar. So our food palette is very wide ranging, but I'll go with Italian. I'm going to put you on the spot here between Philly... San Francisco and New York, what's the best Italian food city? Oh, man. I'm going to go with New York. If I had to go with Mexican food, I'm going to go with San Francisco, hands down. Philadelphia just has a good melting pot of everything, but New York is just a very special place when it comes to food. With Philadelphia and everybody's got a favorite, what's your favorite cheesesteak place? I'm not going to lie. I didn't have as many cheesesteaks as I probably should have. I mean, Gino's is good. There's also a place, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, that was on South Street that everybody goes to as well. It's funny, I talked to somebody else with this and had the same thing. I think you're thinking about gyms. Yes, thank you. Yes, but I will say that it's not a real Philly cheesesteak unless you're in Philly. I don't know if it's something that they use to cook with or if it's the water or something, but a Philly cheesesteak, truly you have to be in Philadelphia. I don't know if I've actually had a good Philly cheesesteak outside of Philly. So what was behind your decision to move from New York to L.A.? I was filming a show called 20s that Nina Waif created. And me and my wife, Emily, we did a summer out here. And she's also from Los Angeles. She's from Woodland Hills. And there's so much space and there's so much sunshine. It's nice to go to the grocery store and then put your stuff in a car and drive and be able to control your temperature. I'm from Cali. And every time I came back to California, I knew I was going to end up here. But then after COVID, it definitely put a lot of things in perspective. And my parents are back in San Francisco now. And then all three of us kids live in LA now. So we're all back on the West Coast. And working out here was really cool and a great opportunity as well. Great experience doing that television show. I've always been a Cali boy at heart. And it just felt really good to come home. And I also just live close to Burbank Airport now. So if there's no traffic and no delays door to door, I can see my parents two hours. So that's super appealing to me. How did you end up getting the role of Chuck on 20s? Susan Fails Hill, who was the showrunner, and I didn't know this story until my first table read. She saw me in Hamilton. I think the story is her daughter was about to go to college and she asked her daughter what she wanted to do before she left. And she said, I want to go see Hamilton. And she was like, okay. And they'd already seen it a few times, but I actually wasn't supposed to be in the show that day. And I think that the lead called out and he was sick at the time. So I did the show. And so she saw me as Hamilton 
And then after that, she was, oh, I think this is who I want to play Chuck. And so she sent an audition. I did a self-tape. And then I found out I booked the role. And then during my first table read, she told me the story of her going to the show and wanted me to play Chuck. So you never know who's watching you when you're performing. And I'm really happy that her daughter wanted to go see the show that day because maybe if she didn't, maybe she wouldn't have known who I was and maybe I wouldn't have gotten the role. So that's how my involvement as Chuck in 20s came about. I didn't even ask this. How did you end up getting in New York in the first place? My brother lived in New York at the time and we were in Philadelphia. So an opportunity to be away from home, but still be kind of close to home. And I applied to a few schools, but I ended up going to the American Academy Dramatic Arts, and it just felt like a school that was really right for me. And so when I got accepted, that's where I decided to go. And it was also just really cool because I got to be close with my brother and hang out with him more. And then being able to just catch the bus or the train or drive down to Philadelphia was just much easier and super appealing, but that's how I ended up in New York. Was your brother in New York for 9-11? Yes, still remember it. I was a junior in high school, third period. I was in choir and on the PA, the principal came on and said, everybody needs to go to a classroom that has a TV. The plane has hit one of the Twin Towers. So I watched the whole thing, which is crazy. But my brother was going to the new school but he was actually asleep. He was in Brooklyn in his apartment. And so he woke up to like 10 voicemails from like me and my mom. So he was in New York, but he was very far away from the destruction of it all. After you got to New York, what was the first role that you got that you said, you know what, maybe I could do this? Oh, that's a good question. At school, we did a lot of shows and there was a show called Lady from Dubuque which was really great. I basically played the assistant to the angel of death. And the best compliment that we got as a cast was one of my favorite teachers that I've had, Jackie Bartone. She said, usually I leave that show after intermission because I never understood it. But you guys did such a great job. I decided to stay. And now I know what the show is about. So congratulations. And then after that, I was like, oh, wow. Well, we can impress Jackie Bartone. Okay, maybe I can do this. I did a lot of readings for people, and I was doing the actor lifestyle where I was waiting tables and going to open mics and just reading people's scripts or doing a show that a friend might be putting on and going to countless, countless auditions. And then finally it hit. That's kind of what happens with actors. Some people it hits immediately after school or at some point, and I graduated 2005 but I didn't get my first Broadway show until 2014. Nine years, that's a lot of waiting tables. I imagine you have a few stories. I got so many stories. The gentleman that played Data on Star Trek, I waited on him and I was giving my feel about the specials and he stopped me and he goes, you're an actor, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you have really good diction. I can tell you're putting on a performance and I had to get I was like, oh, thank you so much. And he left me a great tip. He was so sweet. He was really, really nice. But I also feel like everybody should have to be in the service industry for like a year minimum, because then I feel like there wouldn't be any rude people. The service industry is super hard. 
and I didn't cook your steak, so I'm very sorry that it didn't come out exactly how you wanted, but don't yell at me for it. It hurts my feelings. But waiting tables, it's the gig. And it's also, as an actor, what you feel like you need to do to make money. And the restaurant business is also a really interesting, fun world as well. But I'm grateful right now that I'm not waiting tables. I haven't asked you about this yet, and you're not allowed to say your dad. Who did you really enjoy watching, whether it be music, entertainment, sports, etc.? My favorite basketball player after Michael Jordan is Kevin Garnett. He was super passionate and fiery. And I met him once as a kid when we lived in Minnesota because we went to some Timberwolves games. I follow him on Instagram, and every time he has one of his interviews, I watch them. He has great stories. First actor I probably watched, and I was like, oh my God, who was that? Is Don Cheadle. Sometimes you turn on the TV, and for some reason you're like, I should watch this movie. And that was the first time I saw Don Cheadle perform in a movie called Rebound, where he played Earl Manigault, who was a Rucker Park basketball star. And musician, besides my dad, is Andre 3000 from Outcast, And then my brother was the one that introduced me to Outcast, And I think I also gravitated towards Andre 3000 because we share the same birthday. He's exactly 10 years older than me. I actually know all three of those names. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> They're definitely some of my favorites for sure. And one time he actually came to see Hamilton, but I was in rehearsals learning another part so I didn't get to meet Andre 3000, and I was super, super upset. No one told me. I would have ran back to the theater just to get a picture and say hi, but I wasn't in the know. I didn't know that he was there, so that was kind of a bummer. It always sucks when you just miss somebody by a hair. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. The one that I got to meet who blew my mind, though, was Mark Hamill, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I love Star Wars. Luke Skywalker, he was everything. And I was on for Lafayette Jefferson that day. And then I was on stage saying hi to somebody. And the house manager came up to me and was like, oh, somebody wants to meet you. And I turned around and it's Mark Hamill. And I immediately apologized and dropped my backpack. I'm so sorry. I'm about to become six years old right now. You're very influential to me growing up. And I think I like probably just started stuttering or something. And then I got a picture with him, which was awesome. That was a fun moment. You meet famous people and sometimes you're like, oh, I get it because you're famous and I kind of lived in that world growing up. But when you meet somebody who was really important to you, you kind of revert back to being a little kid again. So that was a really fun experience. So at least I got to meet another one of my heroes. How did your love of Star Wars come to be? Honestly, I don't know. I don't have the memory of watching it for the first time, but I had a really big imagination. I would just go out in the backyard and play by myself all the time. And it was Superman first, and then somehow it became Star Wars. But I love Star Wars. And I just think I was drawn to the fantasy of it and the lightsabers and force. And I mean, who doesn't love Darth Vader? So I think it caught me like at the perfect time in my childhood. And a life goal would be put me in an alien costume and make me an extra for Star Wars. And I would be very happy. When the Star Wars movies came out, were you in line waiting to get tickets? Yes. Yes, I was. I was in line for The Force Awakens, and some company had like bought some screens out. Everybody's standing outside. So I went up to the person who was directing the line at the time and asked what was going on. And what I noticed was 
everybody was standing in a line towards one door, but then there was all these other doors for the exits, but they all went into the lobby. And so I was two blocks away from the door, but I went up and I was talking to the guy and then I saw people leaving and I knew that my theater was about to be called next. So when I saw people leaving, I just went through the exit and I had my ticket ready. And so I got front row center. So I'm sorry to all the people who I cut in line, but I was waiting out there for a really long time and I just lucked out. So I'm just happy I got to see it in the seats that I got to see it in. I haven't asked you about this yet. What's a favorite story that you have with your dad that does not involve his music or your acting career? Ooh. He made a point to drive us to school whenever he was home when we lived in San Francisco. We had this thing called the Elusive Eleven, where we tried to get to school from when we left the house to school in 11 minutes. We had our route and he would just drive. One time we got there with 13 minutes, 17, like we could never get there in 11 minutes. And one day my dad just beat all the lights and we got there in 11 minutes. And he pulled up to the school and he turned around and he said, we're never doing that ever again. <laughs> so it was probably really fun for us as little kids but I'm sure it was a very not responsible thing for us to be doing at the time. But I also just remember a lot of car rides with my dad and the music that he played. The biggest things that he would play in the car were the Yellow Jackets and Joni Mitchell and Stevie Wonder and James Brown. And if he was ever working on something, he would play it in the car and ask if we liked it. And I think that also is another testament about how good of a dad he was. It wasn't always about the shows. It was about just spending quality time with his kids. Javon, I want to thank you so much for joining the I Play 2 podcast today. It was so much fun to hear about stories with your dad, your acting career, your performances in Hamilton and Motown, and best of luck with your career now in LA. Thank you so much. It was fun going down memory lane with you today. And to everybody listening, follow my brother, Taylor McFerrin, follow my sister, Madison McFerrin. I'm sure that you guys will super, super dig their music. And I'll leave you guys with a little tidbit of advice that my dad used to give me. I would always ask him if he was nervous before doing a show. And he said, yeah, but it's not about having butterflies. It's about getting your butterflies to fly in formation. So take that little advice and go out there and get your butterflies flying in formation, everybody.